Buddhist Geeks. Seriously Buddhist, seriously geeky. Episode 144, Turning Your Back to the Buddha. Rodney Smith joins us again to discuss the importance of urban dharma, seeing that the transformative potential of one's life and relationships are on equal footing with silent, more passive forms of meditation. This is part two of a two-part series. Buddhist Geeks is supported largely by the generosity of our listeners. If you like what we're doing, please consider making a one-time or monthly recurring donation by visiting BuddhistGeeks.com forward slash donate. So switching gears just a little bit, though this is all kind of contained in, in these in the conversation and in your interests. Yeah. One thing that I've heard you talk about and that you're experimenting with in the Seattle Insight Group is something we could call urban dharma. Yes. Yeah, that's yes. dharma that exists, you know, side by side with and in our normal everyday daily lives. Absolutely. And I was wondering if you could say more about this idea of urban dharma. What I you- sure can. It's it's my passion. I personally am not a retreat teacher per se. I teach retreats, but my focus and interest is really on each moment and not specializing one moment over and above another. I think we do ourselves a tremendous disservice when we prioritize environments or situations as being a spiritual or waiting for the spiritual to happen, really. And I've just noticed that because I was, have taught many retreats, how many people, upon leaving a retreat, would sort of put their life on hold, their spiritual life on hold, waiting for the next retreat to occur. And I know many Dharma teachers talk about using your life, everyday life, for your spiritual growth. But I always felt that in the back of most of those teachers' minds was the real message was come back on retreat. And that's where the real spiritual focus and growth lives. I simply do not believe that at all. And I think what happens is that when we put ourselves on hold like that, because the mundane world doesn't feel as if it holds the sacred, the routines and conditioned references of our life, the ways that we react in relationship, the ways that we work day after day in the routines of our life, doesn't feel exciting to us. It feels typical and normal and usual, but not spiritual. And that we wait for some some ingredient of spiritual, like sublime mind states or visions or experiences, so that we can relate that special feeling as something spiritual and then go back and try to regain access to those qualities of mind or whatever they are. Meanwhile, our, our life is passing us by, and it really requires us as a group saying, look, you know, this is it. This moment is it. This is our whole reference. There is no other time but now. And I mean that not figuratively, but literally. It's now or never. And that now or never, you see that we really have to show up for this thing. And that if we place our life, our regular routine life, on a secondary tier, 
to the primary experience of having a retreat, then we are essentially betraying our spiritual orientation to life itself. Life, this momentary life, this immediate moment of now holds it all. It is here that presence is felt. It is here that everything evolves and transpires. And I, as an urban Dharma teacher, really emphasize that point, that this is in a spiritual adventure, and um, let's not make it into anything other than that. So that's why I focus my teaching on the urban dwellers or rural dwellers, whichever, but ones that don't hold a priority of one location being more spiritual than another. Mm. And do you find that that actually changes the mechanics of how you would lead a community in terms of what you actually do? Yes. It changes everything. It changes everything. I got involved in all of this uh, almost 40 years ago, so I've seen the evolution of Western Buddhism primarily, but spirituality in general, go over these four decades. And when I first got involved in this, the retreat was everything. Samadhi, or the ability of the mind to concentrate and hold itself steady, was almost a reverential part of whatever we were doing. Unless we had a high degree of samadhi, and everything we were to do spiritually was to reinforce that steady and quality of mind. And it all has this sense of journey, of walking towards something, of moving away from where we are towards something better, something more perfect, something in which we could claim our proper spiritual orientation. And it dawned on me that I never had enough of this. I never had enough of samadhi. I never had enough concentration. I never had enough love. I never had enough calm, never enough peace. And that the mind was never going to allow me to be content if I continued to walk it as if it were a journey going someplace. And what does it look like when it's an arrival, when it's here and the journey's over? Because I realized that the mind was never going to itself come to a complete ending of the journey, that I had better do it because the mind wasn't going to follow suit. So at that point, I said, okay, what's it look like when it's just, this is it, when I'm not making a journey, a spiritual journey away from now? And that changed everything. It changed my teaching, really, and... In fact, it was a teacher in their relationship with me that first brought that point home with Nisargadatta Maharaj and the famous teacher in Bombay, India, in 1980. Mm. And how did he bring that home for you? That's interesting. Well, it is. I, I went to him as a monk. I had ordained in Burma, and I'd heard about him through the books, I Am That, and was very interested in meeting the man because there was something in his writing that it piqued my curiosity. So I traveled as a monk across India to Bombay and went to his little room. He was an interesting man. He didn't have any teeth. He was a chain-smoking... He was just an interesting man. <laughs> so as a monk, he brought me right up front, and he wanted to know what I had been doing in my monk days and asked me about all my practices. And, you know, I thought he was genuinely respecting not only my tradition, but my advanced spiritual progress in my tradition. And I was arrogant, I'm sure, in how I was speaking about it. So he kept doing that day after day. And one day I sat down in front of him, which is the proper place I was sitting every time I went. 
And he says, what are you doing sitting there? And I says, well, I've come to talk to you. And he says, all you've been giving me for all these days is just worthless manure. He said, I want you to go back into the back of the room, and I don't want you to say anything until you can say something wise. And, of course, I could never could come up with anything wise to say, so I was shunned. And in the course of his speaking to me, he says, you know, all you've been telling me about the work you've done, he says, why don't you come across that line and show up with me? Actually, be present with me and show me not the work that is yet to do, but the perfection that is here. And there's something in the way he said it that completely threw my mind into a different reference point. And it's really from that day forward that I have seen spiritual work in a very, very different relationship than what I had when I was working diligently as a Buddhist monk. What I realized was I kept framing uh, my teachings prior to meeting Nisargadatta Maharaj. I kept framing them in terms of lifetimes. And I never thought I was ready. I always thought, well, you know, I'll get so much done this lifetime and then next lifetime I'll have so much left to do and I'll just work diligently. But there was a kind of way that I really didn't believe in myself enough to believe that I could contain it now. And so in some ways, the message of lifetime reinforced a sense of self-doubt I had, that I just wasn't up to the task of really showing up for my life or being awake here and now. The way it was framed actually reinforced sort of a deep neuroses of my own self-doubt, my own sense of unworthiness. And I saw that how one frames the Dharma can reinforce the very problems which one is seeking to have a remedy for through the Dharma. And for me, it wasn't helpful. For some people, it may well be helpful to think in terms of lifetimes and all of that. For me, it just wasn't. When it becomes immediate, and we see that each of us, by our very nature, have the potentiality, contain the potentiality of showing up for this moment. And that all of the conditioning reference we've given ourselves in terms of our limitation, in terms of what we think about ourselves, has been the conditioning path that has, its momentum has kept us moving away from this moment, thinking of a journey and a reference towards becoming something so that I can not be a person in pain, but so that my pain can be remedied sometime in the future. All of that ends. The image that comes to my mind is like being on the outside of a cave and all of the past messages we've given ourselves and all of the beliefs we hold of ourselves come out of the cave like flying bats and we're at the mouth of the cave and the bats continue to fly out but we're not flying with them any longer we're just holding the space at that cave opening and no longer moving forward with that momentum of that old conditioning and I really saw that each of us has that ability in the present moment to hold our past and not resurface again as the same limited neurotic person moment after moment that we were and have held ourselves to be and that this neurotic person is never going to evolve into completion. That's an essential point, that this neurotic person thinks of him or herself as someone who is evolving towards some sense of refinement, some self-improved way that I will then become so that I'll no longer be in pain. 
in fact, the mind keeps evolving itself into more pain through that very logic. And it's not until we stop that logic that we allow the bats to fly through us, around us, rather than flying with them in the air. Interesting. And how have you reconciled that view with the emphasis in the insight tradition on the developing the paramis and developing, you know, you already mentioned developing right. samadhi, and uh, it's right. very a developmental system. It is. Well, okay, so the way I look at the paramis are, those are all qualities of presence. When consciousness is present to itself, when consciousness is present, there's natural warmth of heart. There's natural metta. That's one of the paramis. There's natural generosity is because it's not being held within the limitation of its own greed response. There's natural generosity. The ability of presence to hold a situation without weighing in with judgment, just holding it, has natural patience, which is another parmi. You see, all of these paramis are actually contained within the awareness, the presence itself. And we take it on as projects that we have to do. I have to be more patient. I'm not patient enough. And who can claim any purification of any of the paramis when the self weighs in? Because the self always looks at what it has and then holds some ideal of that quality out in front of it, like patience being perfect, absolute, refined, and then weighs in and sees that its level of patience isn't up to the standard of the ideal it's set, and so it says, I have more to do. So if we take it on as a cultivation, we take it on as really a tension within ourselves, creating ourselves more pain within that tension. And we don't see that if we look at dropping, if we really investigate the lack of generosity I have in this moment, and we see our selfishness, and we are willing to surrender our selfishness in that moment, we will find ourselves in a very generous place through surrendering selfishness, not through cultivating generosity. Mm. Do you see the difference? I do, yeah. So, yeah. It's a very subtle but very important difference. So the way I teach is by looking at what it is, where the limitations are, where do you see your limitations, and really questioning those limitations to see if they are limitations or whether... They're, in fact, just images of oneself that one is trying to get over. Mm, gotcha. And kind of stepping back to the mechanics or, like, the manifestation of how this looks, like, if I were to, to come and, and practice in your community, would, would it look different than most other spiritual communities that are similar? And beyond the view, would there be a different way of engaging in the community? To be honest, there aren't that many community centers in the Vipassana or Insight tradition, mostly there are retreat centers mm -hmm. in our tradition. But there are three or four, and I think they're all good quality teachers. I think Tar Brock and Gil Franz stay on some of the other. They're really fine teachers. So I'm not sure mine would look any differently, but one of the things that we encourage in our Sangha is homework. First of all, I I'll give a talk, and then I'll give them homework, and then we'll come back and re-engage in the homework through discussions. This is important because what I'm finding is that the insight tradition has been so focused on the passivity of sitting quietly 
that it misses the interactive part, the action part. See, the cells of the body have to change, and the cells aren't going to change as readily through the passivity of sitting as they are through the active engagement of using and investigating topic in a normal relationship to the world. Say you had a homework assignment on looking at one's patients and you're with your spouse and you see how impatient you are with their inability to understand something you're saying and then working in that moment changes the cells of the body, the neurons of the mind are changed within that interactive process. That's very different than looking at passively sitting and walking meditation and then just looking at one's impatience from a very kind of inward reflective process. I think what the Buddha meant by wise action was just that, was moving our insights out into the world, into the actual expressions of relationships among things and people. And that's really where the cells change into a dynamic understanding of what and who this person is. Mm-hmm. And it, one thing I've reflected on a lot, having done many insight retreats, is just that, where I'll kind of go into retreat and then come back and feel like there's not really a place that I could... Uh, there's not right. really a community that I could right. kind of hash these things out with. Right. Even right. if I felt like something changed fundamentally right. in the retreat, it didn't feel like I could ever quite work that out in relationship with a lot of other people or doing something similar. That's right. I mean, Sangha is a vital part of the Dharma. And the reason it is, is that first of all, many of the problems that we have each embodied over our lifetimes, including much of the sense of separation we have, and the beliefs and pain associated with that sense of separation have come from other people, our parents or significant others in our life that have told us when we were too small to critically question what we were being told, we told us that we were such and such a person or a bad child or whatever. And we have held those beliefs within us. And through the exposure of people who are working in similar ways, who are really looking at exploring those root issues that we invested in and believed so long ago, they aren't interested in reinforcing that view in us. They're interested in the joy of exploring whether those beliefs are really true. And that's the beauty of Sangha. When you get people together who are moving in the same way, who are synergistically working with each other so that that act of exploration isn't being judged or being reinvested back into a belief of sense of self, you get this wonderful sort of hundredth monkey result where one person's effort helps another's. And it is very, very important, very important indeed. And I find it interesting that you still lead retreats, and so it sounds like you haven't disposed of that, but it's no, part of something not at bigger all. now. Yes. I never try to persuade someone away from their natural inclination. I never say, oh, you don't need to do that or you should do this. I really allow the person's own intentions to govern their spiritual prescription for themselves. And I think that's important because each of us have a prescribed path within us. And your path is going to look very different than my path or anyone else's path. And 
to allow the full embodiment of that path. And so for many people, partially because most people who come into this particular tradition are introverted, their path is one of self-reflection. And they're naturally drawn towards environments that lead to a kind of focused self-perception. And retreats are fine. There's nothing wrong with retreats as a normal part of one's spiritual growth. It's when we emphasize that environment over and above other parts of the environment. That's where it gets skewed. And I also think, I mean, I talked about samadhi, but I also believe that for most of us, developing the ability to discern when the mind is thinking and when the mind is seeing clearly is very important. And that's the point of samadhi is that you begin to know when you're thinking about something as opposed to being still and present with something and and not having the thoughts intrude upon that presence. That, for most people, but not for all, but for most people, requires a training. And so the training of following your breath and knowing when you're breathing and when you're thinking begins that stability of mind that allows one to discern the difference. For the Buddhist path, that's an important distinction to have. Great, great. So would you say that, Rodney, that what you're doing now is kind of an evolution both of your own teaching and of of the way Dharma is being presented in our particular time and place? It certainly is an evolution of my own teaching. And in some ways, Joseph Goldstein did a foreword for my book, and he said, uh, I've known Rodney, it's almost a quote, he says, I've known Rodney for a long period of time, and he can best be described as a Buddhist revolutionary. And at first I thought, I wonder what he means by that. But in fact, I do think that Buddhism in general has been editorialized and commented on for 2,500 years and has become encrusted in its own definition and its own, in its own years of history. And words like defilements and fetters and words like that and the translations that occurred just don't revitalize it for me. They're not current. They're not contemporary. They're not, they don't speak to me. So I feel that I'm very strongly in the Buddhist lineage, but I feel that my evolution over time has been one in which I have brought a renewed spirit, really, not by looking at what the Buddha said and marching always towards that drum. I think we can do that. Many teachers face the Buddha statue and decipher and translate the ideas the Buddha spoke. I think that's one orientation to the Buddha, but another orientation is to turn your back to the Buddha, having understood his message, and walk forward so that his message gives your message momentum, but you're now redefining it and looking at it in ways that are more contemporary, more exciting, and more easily accessible to the population in large. And so I think my journey has been first I moved towards the Buddha, and then I turned and walked away, but not away from the Buddha, but away from the stylized words that his message was were given and trying to find my own message within that. Beautiful, beautiful. And and just so people know, um, they can check out more about the Seattle Insight Group at seattleinsight.org. 
Yes, SeattleInsight.org, and we do have our own podcasts. Oh, nice. Oh, perfect. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. So everyone listening, you already know you love podcasts, so go check out the Seattle Insight Podcast. Join us for the fourth annual Buddhist Geeks Conference, hosted in partnership with Mindful Cyborgs and Shambhala Sun from October 16th through the 19th in beautiful Boulder, Colorado. This year's conference will be exploring the convergence of Buddhism with modern culture and technology through informative keynote presentations, idea-packed TED-style talks, self-organizing community dialogues, and contemplative workshops and practice periods. This year's list of presenters includes the world's most quantified man, Chris Dancy, abbot of the village Zendo in New York City, Roshi Pat Enkyo O'Hara, and pragmatic Dharma provocateur, Daniel Ingram, as well as many others. For more information and to register, visit BuddhistGeeks.com slash conference. After nearly a year in private beta, the Buddhist Geeks Network is now open for any independent practitioners who want to engage in interdependent practice. You can find out more about the Buddhist Geeks Network by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. And if you'd like to join the community and join us in regular social meditation practice or other events that we host there in the network, all freely offered, you're very welcome to do so, again, by visiting BuddhistGeeks.network. Love to see you there.